Greetings, this is a reading of the book, The Airship Golden Hide. Some of the language in this book has not aged well and is indeed no longer politically correct take caution when listening to this visual audiobook. Footage and photography are provided by Fortations. At Fortations, we believe that the world would be a better place if people spent their time being creative join us in practicing art so we all can be the master of art. Find art prints available at our store www.fortationstore.com. Keep our artwork alive by making a donation at fortationsdonations.com. The Airship Golden Hind by Percy F. Westerman Chapter 5 First Away Being apparently motionless and still air, although virtually she was drifting in a southerly direction at a modest 10 miles an hour, the Golden Hind maintained her altitude for the best part of half an hour before any attempt was made to start the motors. She was now to all intents and purposes a non-dirigible balloon floating aimlessly in the air. Peter Bramston, his work after accomplished, made his way to the navigation room, where he found the baronet and Kenyon watching the galaxy of lights far beneath them. We're drifting over Pool Harbor, observed Foster Deck that's prohibited for private owned aircraft. But who's to know? I often wonder what would happen, said Peter, if a non-dirigible drifted over a prohibited area hang it all. The balloonist couldn't control the wind, neither can the air ministry, so what's the poor fellow to do? From their lofty post of observation, the officers of the Golden Hind could see the coastline standing out distinctly in the starlight away to the southeast the powerful street. Catherine's Light through its beam athwart the sky in a succession of flashes every five seconds near, but less distinct could be seen the distinctive lights of the needles in Hearst Castle. Then a curved line of glittering pinpoints that esplanade lamps of Bournemouth to the south, west the lesser glare of Swanhead, and beyond the glow of Anvil Point Lighthouse. Lesser lights, like myriads of glow worms, denoted scattered towns, villages, and detached houses ashore, while right ahead and for the most part visible only by the aid of binoculars could be discerned the red, green, and white navigation lights of shipping passing up and down the channel. The three men watched the nocturnal panorama almost without emotion. The sight would have moved a novice into raptures of delight. But to the veteran airmen there was little new except, perhaps, that in the place of star shells, searchlights, flaming onions, and exploding shrapnel were the lights of a nation once more at peace with her neighbors even if not so with herself. Foster Day glanced at a clock set upon the bulkhead. Time, he announced laconically. Indicators. Plange in various parts of the ship within a few seconds, the six motors, started by compressed air, were roaring. Swaying slightly under the resistance of the gas bag overhead, 
The airship gathered away in place of complete calm came the rush and whine of the wind as the golden hind leapt forward. May as well be on the safe side, remarked Foster Dyke. Switch on the navigation lights. Kenyon, I don't fancy another bus barging into us. He gave an order through a voice tube. Promptly, one of the crew appeared from below. Take her, Taylor, said the stipper, indicating the helm following when no drift. Course SWSW it is, sir, repeated the man, peering into the bowl of the gyroscope compass. Now, you bright beauties, take my tip and turn and said Foster Dyke, addressing Peter and Kenneth. There won't be much doing tonight, I hope, so you may as well make the best of things if you'll relieve me at Fort Kenyon. Could the chums left the navigation room and made their way to their cabin. Here, although adjoining one of the motor rooms, there was comparatively little vibration, but the noise was considerable. We'll get used to it, observed Peter, as he proceeded to unpack his luggage, which had been brought from Plan 4 Station and put on board only a few minutes before the Golden Hind parted company with Terra Firma seems like old times. Hanged if I thought I'd ever be up again. Between ourselves, I'd prefer a bus. Confided Kenyon doesn't seem quite the right thing being held up by a gas bag. Be thankful for small mercies, you old blighter. Exclaimed his companion, turn in as sharp as you can, cause it's your watch and four hours' time. It seemed less than ten minutes before Kenyon was awakened. His first impression was that he was being roused by his Batman, and that illusion was heightened by the fact that the man held a cup of tea. Ten to four, sir announced the airman eyes made you something hot. Kenneth thanked the man, drank the tea, and slipped out of his bunk. He was aware as he donned his clothes, that the golden hind was pitching considerably Peter, sound asleep, was breathing deeply. There was a smile on his face, evidently his dreams were pleasant ones. On his way further, Canyon stopped to exchange a few words with the air mechanic tending the two after motors. Running like clocks, Sir replied the man in answer to Kenneth's inquiry. If things go on as they are going now, I am on a soft job. The first streaks of dawn were showing in the northeastern sky as the relieving pilot clambered up the ladder and gained the navigation room foster day. Busy with parallel rulers and compass was bending over a chart. Morning, he remarked, genially when he became aware of the presence of his relief. Everything okay. Doing 80, and there's a stiff following wind force 5 altitude 5,500 course S. W, that's the lot, I think. We ought to be sighting the Spanish coast in another 20 minutes. Osterdeck waited until the helm's man had been relieved, then giving another glance ahead. He turned to Kenyon. 
we passed something going in a westerly direction at 1.15 m. he announced, an airship flying fairly low, about 2,000, I should think. Not a competitor, sir. Harley. No one but a born fool would think of taking a westerly course round the earth if engaged in a race against time we were passing over Bill Isle on the French coast at the time, and it rather puzzled me why an airship should be proceeding west from the Biscayne coast. French patrol possibly suggested Canyon, or a Hun running a cargo of arms and ammunition to Ireland. I signaled her, but she didn't reply right Oh, Carry on. Foster Dick went to his cabin to sleep like a lot. He was one of those fortunate individuals who can slumber almost anywhere and at any time, but rarely if ever did he sleep for more than five hours at a stretch. Even after a strenuous day's mental and physical work, he would be as fresh as pain. After his customary cock left in the company of the airmen at the helm, Kenyon prepared to accept responsibility. Until eight o'clock, he took up his position at the triplex glass window, the navigation room being the only compartment where Solid was not employed for purposes of lighting. It was a weird sight that met his gaze overhead and projecting from beyond the point of the nacelle was the blunt nose of the gas bag. The port side tinted a rosy red as the growing light glinted on it, the starboard side showing dark gray against the somber sky. A thousand feet below were rolling masses of clouds, their nether edges suffused by dawn between the rifts and the bank of vapor was apparently a black, unfathomable void, for as yet the first signs of another day were vouchsafed only to the airmen flying far above the surface of the sea. Already the stars had paled before the growing light wisp of vapor clouds on a higher plane to the denser ones below were trailing athwart the course of the Golden Hind until, overtaken by the airship's High speed. They were parted asunder to follow in the eddying wake of the powerful propellers. In the navigation room, being placed right for Zerd, the jerky motion of the fuselage that was noticeable in Kenyon's cabin was greatly exaggerated. It was a totally different sensation from being in an aeroplane when the bus entered a pocket. It reminded Kenyon of a lift being alternately started up and down, with only a brief interval between. Rather vaguely, the pilot wondered what he would be like at the end of 21 days of this sort of thing. Bucking a bit, isn't she? Thompson, he remarked to the helmsman who, relieved of the responsibility of maintaining a constant altitude by the fact that the airship was automatically controlled in that direction was merely keeping the vessel on her compass course. Yes, sir, replied the man. She'll be steadier when we trim the planes. 
might have thought of that before, soliloquized Kenny, and he remarked that the six wings were secured in a horizontal position. For the present, the golden hind was kept up solely by the lift of the brodium and the balance not until it was fully like would Fosterdike reduce the gas in the balance and rely upon the planes for lift. A quarter of an hour later, while Kenyon was engaged in making an entry in the log, the helm's man reported land ahead. The Golden Hind was approaching the Spanish coast, not in the hostile way in which her namesake did, but on a friendly voyage across a country that, if not exactly an ally, is bound by strong ties to Great Britain. The airship was soon passing over Santander. Ahead, the Cantabrian mountains reared themselves so high in the air that the Golden Hind had to ascend another 3,000 feet to enter an easy crossing. At 8 o'clock, Fustredheg appeared in the navigation room. Under his orders, the airship's speed had been sensibly diminished. He intended to put to a practical test the lifting powers of the six planes. Close behind him came Bramston, on whom the duties of officer of the watch to Volk for the next four hours. Well, old bird, he observed, genuinely addressing his chum, how goes it? Fresh as paint, replied Kenyon, but as hungry as a hunter. Then hook it, continued Peter. The cooks dished up a sumptuous breakfast. Kenyon ate a hurried but ample meal. He was anxious to see how the golden hind maneuvered as an aeroplane. Upon returning to the navigation room, he found that the six comparatively small wings were being tilted to an effective angle, while a large quantity of brodium was being exhausted from the alternate balance into the pressure flask until there was only enough lift remaining in the envelope to prevent it dropping earthwards and thus disturbing the stability of the fuselage by acting as top amber. Simultaneously, instructions were telegraphed to the air mechanics standing by the six motors to increase the number of revolutions. The change was instantly appreciable. No longer did the Golden Hind pitch she settled down to a rapid, steady motion, her speed being not far short of 150 miles an hour. No ailerons, explained Fosterdyke. Horizontal and vertical rudders only saves a lot of trouble and complication of gear. Sense not permissible, sir, asked Kenyon. No, he replied, they are not. We're out to do something definite, not to let the Spanish have an exhibition of an airship making a spinning nosedive or looping the loop, but we'll do a volplane just to test the gliding powers of the bus. He touched a switch by which a warning bell rang in each of the motor rooms. This was to inform the mechanics that the electric current would be simultaneously cut off from the six motors so that there would be no need on their part to endeavor to locate faults that did not exist. Cut out ordered foster bag. 
Bremsden promptly depressed a small switch by the side of the indicator board. This automatically cut off the ignition. The propellers made a few more revs, and then came to a standstill in almost absolute silence, save for the whine of the wind in the struts and tension wires. The Golden Hind began her long, oblique glide earthward. Suddenly, Kenyon gripped the baronet's arm. Look, he exclaimed airship. Foster Dyke did as requested. The Golden Hind was maneuvering high above La Manga, the undulating well-watered plain between the Montes del Toledo and the Sierra Morena, 6,000 feet beneath the airship. The town of Ciudad Real glinted in the slanting rays of the morning sun. Our shadow, that's all declared Foster Dyke. No, not that, protested Kenneth. More to the left. He grasped a pair of binoculars and looked at the object that had attracted his attention. It was a somewhat difficult matter, owing to the refraction of the triplex glass in front of the navigation room, where, in contrast to the rest of the windows, fireproof celluloid had not been employed. Before Canyon had got the airship in focus, the baronet had also spotted it. Apparently, it had just left its shed and was heading in a southeasterly direction, differing a good four points from that followed by the Golden Hind. By Jove, exclaimed Kenyon. It's a Fritz I can spot the black crosses on the envelope. In that case, added Foster Day, coming, Count Karl von Sindig has stolen a march on us. He's one up. 